Welcome to the Wednesday Bible study here from the Broadcast Plaza and Teleport, and just so honored that you would take time to be with us. We're walking through our latest series. Today will be part three of a series called The Unsaved Christian. It is based off this book uh, by Dean and Sarah, uh, and, and it talks about you know what, what Dean, and, and, I, and I agree, believes may be the biggest unreached people group in our country. So what does he mean by an unsaved Christian? What he's talking about is something that you've heard us talk about a lot over the years, cultural Christianity. Uh, I really, when I read this book, it spoke to me. I thought we need to work it in to our Wednesday Bible study, mainly because I'm a recovering cultural Christian myself. Uh, I was uh, delusional about my uh, salvation uh, and had lived a life of cultural Christianity. And I'm just so thankful uh, that some of the things that are talked about in this book were used to by God to reach me and to pull me out uh, of this false sense of, of salvation uh, and to uh, learn what it was like to truly repent of sin, uh, the severity of sin, submit to the authority of Christ, be redeemed, and, and then start the process, which continues today, of sanctification. So we're going to jump into chapter 4 today. And, and chapter 4 should be, uh, it's, a, it's a little different look uh, than assessing with just yourself whether you or me what might be a cultural Christian, that's going to be a process throughout this entire study. But today we're going to continue, yes, to assess whether this might be you, but also if you're certain this isn't you, but you also are surrounded by people that maybe the label cultural Christianity or unsaved Christian might apply to, how do you engage them in conversations? How do you reach the cultural Christian? And so there's going to be a lot of that in today's study. So hopefully you've got something to take some notes uh, to listen. Maybe you've gotten a copy of the book and you've already unlined some stuff and we're just going to kind of unpack it with some examples today. Whatever the case may be, I'm thankful that you're here uh, for the next session uh, in this study. Uh, one programming note, next Thursday, May the 28th, there'll be a webinar. If you are involved in men's ministry uh, and you would like to hear more about themanchurch.com, and you'd like to hear about our curriculum or hear about our discipleship strategy, it's going to be a training session, and it will be a webinar, so anyone can be part of it that wants to be part of it, no matter where you may watch or, or listen to this Bible study. All you have to do is register, so you'll get the link and be able to join us next Thursday night, the 28th of May, 6.30 Central Time. Andy Blanks will be there, uh, who co-wrote uh, the How to Be a Man devotional uh, and also was part of the pursuit curriculum uh, that we have, uh, our very own Michael Helms from the Rick and Bubba Show, Helmsy, who's currently teaching the pursuit curriculum. He'll also be part of that webinar, and we'll show you how to implement this strategy into your church or into your community. So it's absolutely free, but you do need to register. If you want to register, go to rickandbubba.com, look under events, you'll see May 28th, and just fill out the information, and then we'll talk to you in the webinar coming up next Thursday. So let's open up with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for today. We certainly, Lord, understand that, uh, that we are not in the position to judge anyone's salvation. However, you are, uh, and you've revealed very clearly in your word uh, what it looks like to be redeemed and, and, and how is one redeemed, how is one reconciled uh, back to you, our Father, who is holy uh, through you, Jesus, uh, who intercedes on our behalf and paid the price uh, that was due us. And why was that? Why did that price have to be paid? Uh, and, and Lord, may we continue to learn everything that you revealed uh, about you and also then assess ourselves as you instructed us through the Apostle Paul to ask an uncomfortable question, are we, are we in the faith? And then to prepare today to maybe you know, be a vessel to reach out to those who may find themselves trapped in cultural Christianity, how do we, how do we reach out to them, engage them, and, and, and an uncomfortable conversation about true redemption. Help us with this today, Lord, as we unpack your word in this commentary from Pastor Dean and Sarah. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And first of all, I do sometimes run things together. Got a very funny email this week from someone who thought I was saying Dean and Sarah, as if it was a husband and wife combination. No, it's Pastor Dean, and his last name is in Sarah. So, Apologies from, uh, for my drawl for doing that. All right, so if, if you have the book, uh, The Unsaved Christian, or you're just following with us, this is going to be in Chapter 4. There's a, there's a, um, 
a great quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, that starts this, this, uh, this chapter. This is one of the Bible studies that we did uh, several years ago, and it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship. Uh, and it's a very hard-hitting book. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the heroes of the faith, and, and he says this, this quote, which comes from The Cost of Discipleship. It says, The antithesis between the Christian life and the life of the bourgeois respectability is at an end. The Christian life comes to mean nothing more than living in the world as the world, you know, living in the world and as the world, and being no different from the world. In fact, and being prohibited from being different from the world for the sake of grace. Now you'll talk, they're talking about cheap grace here. He said, you know, it looks like the Christian life is, it's almost, we have to apologize for saying that we're not, uh, you know, we're not of the world. Uh, and then he goes on to say, and all this usually is used under this veil of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. The upshot of it all is that my only duty as a Christian is to leave the world for an hour or so on Sunday morning, go to church to be assured that my sins are all forgiven. I need no longer to try to follow Christ for cheap grace, the bitterest foe of discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, let me tell you what's the foe of true discipleship. It's cheap grace. And I say amen. He said, true discipleship must loathe and detest cheap grace, and true discipleship has freed me from that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, talking about what cultural Christianity, and um, so there's a great example that Pastor Dean and Sarah uh, gives us about a GPS in New Orleans, and talking about that he had some idea how to get to where he was going in New Orleans, uh, but he becomes so dependent on the GPS when the signal wouldn't work and the GPS wouldn't work, he had no idea how to find. You know, we become very dependent on the on the GPS. He couldn't find where he was going, and he had to go old school and start trying to ask people how to get there. Uh, and, and he used this as an example, you know, of what he called theological triage, uh, and that's what we find with the cultural Christian. Uh, and I think that's a great, uh, what he means by theological triage, he says, what does this person believe? What does this person know about Jesus? What does this person know about the cross, the Bible? Certainly, uh, he, he said before he makes this statement, and I want you to understand this. When we're doing something like this on cultural Christianity, these are sometimes we're going to generalize the situation. We know there's exceptions to this, thankfully, but the, it, when we generalize the problem, it also will help us to identify, though, when we see that that problem actually exists. But but here's the deal: even though this is a generalization, it certainly is true. The hallmark of cultural Christianity is typically being comfortable and familiar with biblical principles, without a sense of personal need for salvation. But even, this is a wide net, and there's no clear way to come at someone and debunk the falsehoods they believe without first digging through what they do believe. And that, that's important. And we're going to learn how to ask some of those questions today of ourselves, but also to ask the questions of maybe people we know that we think might be under this, you know, this, this play on words, unsaved Christian, but but a but an accurate description, cultural Christian, and um, so first of all, we got to compare the conversation you would have with a cultural Christian, um, you know, focused on evangelism, say with an atheist. This is not the same kind of conversation, and so we we talk about this. It says it's um, it's simpler because you can compare what they believe with what the Bible teaches when you're dealing. You know, with an atheist, it's real simple. You go, you know, you, you believe this, but I believe this because the Bible teaches this, and there's historical, you know, ways to, to talk about this that are evidence and all that. But still, but cultural Christians, it's, it's a little bit different. You, you can't have the same starting point you would have with an atheist, an agnostic, someone who's Jewish. You know, if they're not a messianic uh, Jewish person, then I know what our difference is. If I'm talking to a Muslim, I know what our difference is. If I'm talking to a Buddhist, uh, a Mormon, a Hindu, all these have a starting point because I can point and say, you believe this, and that's in conflict with what I believe. But cultural Christians are typically familiar, as I said, and comfortable with biblical principles. But again, they still have those, that comfort, and they're familiar, 
but there's still that loss of that sense for a personal need for salvation. And we talked about some of those reasons, severity of sin and, and other things. But this makes the starting point for an evangelistic conversation unclear and, and at times very complicated. It does. I was a cultural Christian, and trust me, the road that, that, they, that people had to go down to get me to uh, come to the conclusion that I was not a Christian at all was complicated because they weren't starting from a starting point that I know I'm not a Christian. The agnostic knows they're not a Christian. The atheist knows they're not a Christian. The Muslim, um, the, the Hindu, the Buddhist. Mormons are a little different because they do, have a, uh, a, they do have a view that they are a Christian, so that's a little bit different. But when you're talking to a Mormon, if you get into the Book of Mormon and the things that Mormons believe, uh, especially about Jesus, you find out pretty quick we have substantial different views. So, but not with the cultural Christian. Cultural Christian is not a Mormon. Uh, the cultural Christian is really convinced that they believe the same thing that you believe if you're a true Christian. So that makes it a little more complicated. So Dean and Sarah in his book says, well, we've got to find a way then to find some common ground. Uh, this can be frustrating, but it's important to remember the cultural Christian will go to Jesus in times of need. Remember, a cultural Christian believes in Jesus, and they'll go to Jesus in a time of need, but they see themselves as good people, not really in need for any forgiveness from God through Jesus. I can't think of anything that I've, uh, I've really done that's all that bad uh, that would uh, really require uh, redemption. So that gives me a different view of Jesus. I believe in Jesus. So good people make mistakes, and this is what they believe. Good, hey, look, hey, I, I do some things I shouldn't do. I had a conversation about this in the last couple of days with, with a cultural Christian. And, uh, but sinning is not something that a cultural Christian will ever label on themselves. I, I have some behavior that could be better, but I'm still a pretty good person. You know, I'm not a bad person. I'm not, I don't have the kind of sin like people in jail or in prison or the person that did this and the person that did that, which Jesus talked about having this wrong kind of attitude in Scripture. You remember this, the tax collector versus the guy that wanted to say, I'm not as bad as him, and then the tax collector is praying a prayer that acknowledges how wretched he really is. And Jesus said it's the prayer of the tax collector uh, that is acceptable, uh, not from the Pharisee or the person who doesn't think they're in need of any redemption. So anyway, so atheists, they don't believe God exists, so it's easy to see why they wouldn't think they need God. They certainly don't need something they don't think exists. But still, the cultural Christian would be highly offended to be thought of as in need of the gospel. Highly offended. I was highly offended. If you remember, if you know my testimony, my testimony to the pastor that was, was calling me out of cultural Christianity, my first reaction was, who are you to tell me I'm lost? To which he replied, I'm not telling you you're lost. Your life is telling me you're lost. And then, of course, since I had very little knowledge of Scripture, it didn't take long for me to start learning Scripture that I realized I probably should have figured this out on my own if I had only known Scripture. But anyway, the cultural Christian is, is, is going to be offended at the thought of anyone suggesting uh, that they're in need of the gospel. But again, they seem to only believe in God when they need prayer for like an upcoming surgery. You know, they're, they're not afraid to bring up prayer in times of desperation or need of prayer uh, maybe I got this job interview coming up. Hey, man, pray about this for me. Or I got a kid in trouble in my family. Pray about this. Um, but but they, the cultural Christian believes Jesus died on a cross. They believe that historically happened. But in more of a generic sense, the cultural Christian doesn't really think of Jesus dying on the cross as a substitute for the sins of them as an individual. They don't see it that way. It's kind of a generic view. Historically, they absolutely believe it happened, but they don't really see it in the correct way. And uh, so some examples that, that he had for us, and, and we'll walk through these, on some, some ways to kind of get started if you want to talk to a cultural Christian in your family, in your workplace, in your church, uh, or maybe this is you. Maybe you're working through this. So listen to these things. He says the first thing, write this down, Number one, you want to start with the God of the Bible. 
oh my goodness, I could go on and on about this. I did this. We People create this version of God that is not the God of the Bible. So the first thing that you want to try to talk about with a cultural Christian, or if you're a cultural Christian, you might want to become familiar with, is the God of the Bible. Uh, and, and remember, this goes back to you know, when Dean and Sarah had the seminary friend in the parking lot named Matt, this is going to be a challenging thing for you in the Bible Belt with cultural Christians. The process of getting someone lost has a starting point, and that starting point normally is God himself. And now this is important right here. I love this. He said, it's been said that the most important question one can ask is not, is there a God? There's a lot of people believe in God. That's not the most important question, is there a God? Uh, and remember, with a cultural Christian, that never enters into the debate. You're not talking to someone that doesn't believe in God. So that, that's of no use to you in this conversation. Ah, but then this. This is what is of use. Rather, the, the real question to ask the cultural Christian, if there is a God, which they'll acknowledge they believe in, has he spoken? So you believe in this God, but do you know much about what this God has said? And then, remember the quote from, from A.W. Tozer, the most important thing about a person is what comes to their mind when they think about God. That's the most important thing. So you believe in God. Well, you believe, do you believe God has spoken? And if they say yes to that, well, then can we look at some of the things God has actually said? I, I think that if we were introduced to the God of the Bible more often, there would be a lot less cultural Christianity because there would be no way you could be comfortable in that situation. Speaking, again, of my own experience. When I encountered the God of the Bible, I cried holy and realized how wretched I was, and I submitted to his authority, and I repented of sin. But I never encountered very much the God of the Bible, a lot of it of my own, my, my own fault, not the fault of people who were trying to help me, but my own fault. The good news for all is that God has not left us to wonder who he is and has uh, said rather, He's revealed himself to humanity through his written word where those thoughts should be rooted and, and answers found. goes back to the, the book that my wife wrote. You know, where's God during all this pain and suffering? She said, what? Right in the middle of it. Where did she come to that conclusion? The Bible. Uh, God's not silent on pain and suffering. He's not silent on anything when it comes to how he's revealed himself. So while cultural Christians may not truly believe every part of the Bible, they likely won't scoff if you use it as the foundation for a spiritual conversation. Now listen to this, and I had this experience this week. I've rarely met a cultural Christian who did not have some level of respect for the Bible. In fact, when confronted with the truth of the Bible, I've known some cultural Christians to quickly acknowledge the disconnect between what Scripture says and what they have been going around believing. One friend, he says in particular, came to Christ because he couldn't help but dwell on this disconnect. I had a, a situation like this happen this very week. Many people get defensive when their personal character is questioned. Most cultural Christians, however, will not reject, will not, this is good news, reject God's word outright. You start going after their character, you're going to have a problem. But if the Bible goes after their life, that's different. And that's, that's the route we need to take. I'm not the judge of anybody, nor are you, but the Bible is. And because and that's what God has said about the situation, and that's what happened with me. People simply pointed to what God has said about the way I was living, not the way they felt about the way I was living. Do You see, that's important. Don't miss that. And some of you who keep pushing back on this because you don't like people telling you that there's things in your life that you're going to have a, a very difficult time justifying calling yourself a Christian, it's not them you're going to answer to. You're going to answer to God. So it's probably important to know what the God of the Bible actually said about his, himself and about you. It's real important. And so if you'll go down that road, you'll have some success because the Bible speaks for itself. Uh, now, the Bible will get you mocked by an atheist. You believe those silly fairy tales, and you know I've interviewed Richard Dawkins and Christopher, um, I forget his name, Hitchens, and Christopher Hitchens, not as rude as Richard Dawkins, but Richard Dawkins says, oh, you believe in the spaghetti monster, it's some cartoon. So you'll get mocked by the atheist and the agnostic. You won't get mocked by the cultural Christian because they got nowhere to go. They've already claimed that they're a Christian, 
if they claim to be a Christian, that believes they've already supposed to acknowledge uh, that, uh, that the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, and when you say, well, here's the Scripture that you say you believe, and here's what it actually says, you have some success. Because at least the foundation's there. Um, and you know what? Most cultural Christians have Bibles. Now, they don't open them very often. I didn't. Uh, most of the time uh, of my life, I had more Bibles in my home than I knew Bible verses. And, and here's one thing I want to ask you this. You know, we've said this in, the, in this study a lot. It's very convicting for me, and it has been for the men who regularly attend here uh, back when we could have people in the room. And that is, if you want to know where you stand on your devotion to the Word of God, if you left your Bible at church when you could go, okay, and you left it there, how deep into the week would you get before you realized you left it at church? That's one to, to look at as well. And remember, they the, the cultural Christian will usually have this uh, you know, in their home or certainly the Bible app on their phone. An example of this, so I was talking with a cultural Christian just this week, uh, and this person claims to be a Christian, but they live in, I mean, perpetual deliberate sin. Their life, their life is riddled with open sin, as mine was. And so when I'm talking to them, I had a couple questions, and I said, so you, you claim to be a Christian? The person said, absolutely. I said, so can I ask you a question? Yes. Based on what? What makes you a Christian? Well, I'm saved. Okay, so how, how did you get saved? And there was a lot of rambling around. And couldn't come up with anything. He said, well, I just believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I believe he went to the cross, and I believe he died for my sins. Okay, I said, so So did the demons. But what, what, but what, what was it that's, that changed your life, the change you saw? Tell me how you were redeemed. And they, they couldn't tell me. So then I said, do you believe in the Bible? And they said, of course. And I said, okay. So let me read you some stuff from the Bible for you claiming to be a Christian. I said, let me, let me read you this from 1 John chapter 3. Because remember, they were living in perpetual, deliberate, I mean, in some cases, very dark sin, okay? Um, there was some behavior that did not, no way you could make it jive with being under the authority of Christ. It wasn't a stumble. It's deliberate, ongoing lifestyle. And listen to this. So I said, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 6, here's what the Bible says. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. This was a man that I was talking to, and he was dumbfounded. And I said, you live a life that features perpetual, deliberate sin. You do this, you do this, you do this, and you and I are on the phone right now because of what you just did. Do you think that your redemption can fit into what John just said about the redeemed? I said, not talking about people, but we're going to stumble, we're going to make mistakes. We're, we're in the process of sanctification, and perfection is not going to happen as long as we're in this flesh, but progress 100% happens to those who have been redeemed. Notice John said God's seed is supposed to abide in us now, and if that seed is there, we can't continue to sin comfortably. And you sin with very little discomfort. And I don't know the sincerity of the man's heart because that's between him and God. But I will tell you this, that he, 
I said I thought he was under his own authority. He wasn't on, under the authority of Christ. And I told him about Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that he was raised from the dead on the third day, you will be saved. You're not under his authority. I took him to Acts chapter 2. What must we do? We must repent and then rise and be baptized. And then I talked to him about uh, what Scripture had to say. I talked about James chapter 4. When James is taking on some kind of issue in the church body, of all the sin that's in the church body, he says we need to submit to God, resist the devil, come near to God. He'll come near to us. And the man claimed in our moments together that he was doing that. I heard him cry out for God. I heard him say he repented of sin. I heard him say he wanted to submit to the authority of Christ and confess him as Lord. Was he sincere? We'll see. But, he, but the point, what was just made, is when, was, when he was confronted with Scripture, he had nowhere to go. When I was confronted with Scripture that I claimed to believe but didn't know, I had nowhere to go. So that, that can be effective. And then you, the next thing, something that, that has just been completely, almost like it's taken. You ever had somebody say, hey, look, that's off the table. You ever had that? Hey, let me tell you something before we have this conversation. This right here is off the table. I don't like those kind of conversations because that means it's limited in some way. But let me say this. Here's what I think too many people have taken off the table, and that's the next point that he makes. Conversation starters about cultural Christianity. God is holy. I mean, it's almost like we have to be apologetic now for saying that. Uh, hey, I know it's going to make you uncomfortable and nobody likes to talk about this, but God is holy. Well, he is holy. That's the truth of the matter. In, in, in the Bible that, that these cultural Christians claim, claim to believe, and I, I claim to believe, at the very beginning, God presents himself as holy. You, you go back to the first human sin in history with Adam and Eve, you have your Bible or something, your Bible on it, just, just go to the book of Genesis. So we get to Genesis. We get to chapter 3 after the fall. So in chapter 3, we hear in verse 8, after the sin, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees in, uh, of the garden. Well, Dean and Sarah says in his book, they're not playing hide and seek. It's not a game. They're hiding from God because they have committed sin against a holy God that they are fully aware is holy. It's kind of like God's standard for intimacy, gender, and marriage. He covers it at the very beginning, and the standard never changes throughout the entire Scripture. God starts out as holy, and he continues to be holy. And, and, and somehow, you know, we've taken holiness, and we've just acted like it's off the table. You can't talk about holiness, holiness Rick. It bothers people. It upsets people. Well, good. Maybe it should. We would take sin. We'd look at sin a lot different if we realized we're sinning against a holy God. We've talked about this over and over again. So anyway, a belief in God's holiness should lead to the realization that He should be feared. Well, Rick, now you you just uh, you got to be careful talking about fear of God. That just means to have a respect. No, no, it does. But it also means if you look at the original Hebrew words, to be in awe and to tremble, to dread. If God is holy, then sin is serious. If you don't believe sin's serious and God's holy, what's this crucifixion all about? That's why it was so brutal. That's why Jesus had to go there, because God is holy and we are wretched. And there has to be a path back into his presence of full righteousness, and the only way that full righteousness can be achieved is through the redemption provided by Jesus Christ and when we acknowledge that and we repent of our sin and we submit to his authority and God seed, the Holy Spirit, what, what comes into our life? Something called the Holy Spirit. It's in his name. It's in his name. God's presence in your life. What, what's God's presence called? Holy. Why? Well, I guess he must be holy. And, and holiness, outside of the Bible, this is nearly impossible in cultural Christianity because the generic God of cultural Christianity is not defined very well. And it's certainly not defined as holy. You know, we talked, that's that big man upstairs, garbage, and, and all of that. Because, again, when we, when we put him in that place, we've said it a thousand times, it must be said again. When we don't see him as holy, it's because we want him to be easier to sin against. So we make up cartoon versions of him. Okay? Um, 
the God that functions for the cultural Christian, if you want to be brutal, it's really like Mother Nature. It's, 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 a, it's a distant, it, just a distant force. J. Uh, I. Packer wrote this. Unless we see our shortcomings in the light of the law and holiness of God, we do not see them as sin at all. Say that again. Unless we see our shortcomings in the light of the law and the holiness of God, we do not see them as sin at all. And that's why I was able to live in open sin because I really didn't see it as a big deal. That's eh, not a big deal. Especially if it only, I, you know, I was under that delusion, that only affects me. And it, No, that's wrong. It's still affecting people. The sins that I've committed in my life here on earth, even though I have been redeemed and I stand reconciled to a holy God and I have the Holy Spirit that guides me now, the damage my sin caused in my past life still affects people today. And, and it has to be taken extremely serious. So, But the God of the cultural Christian uh, is far from the one that the seraphim declared holy, holy, holy. God is the only thing in the Bible that's ever described as holy, holy, holy. We find this in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. If you want to go to Isaiah chapter 6 and see the vision of God there, you'll tremble. I hope you will. A high view of holiness of God gives us a self-awareness about our standing before God. What did Isaiah say when he saw God for who he was? He responded to the revelation given to him about God by declaring himself to be a man of unclean lips. I'm wretched. I'm wretched. Isaiah 6, 5. I, I got to be made clean. Job, we've talked about this a thousand times. Job goes through his suffering. His suffering pushes him into an intimate relationship with God that he's never experienced before, even though he was a man who was upright. Okay? We, we heard that at the beginning. But as he went through the suffering, we, we, he got so intimately in a relationship with God that he saw God for who God really was. And he said when he got to the place where he really understood the holiness of God, he despised himself. This was a guy that was blameless and upright at the beginning. He despised himself. And he repented in ashes and dust of how sinful he really still was compared to a holy God. The cultural Christian has no concept of the holiness of God, and they need to be introduced to it. And if you're a cultural Christian, you need to be introduced to it because it's a really big deal. It'll change your whole look, the whole way you see sin. The next thing he says, so we got, we got this. You, you want to you start the conversation with a cultural Christian, with the God of the Bible. You want to acknowledge that the God of the Bible is holy. And then the next thing means God's holiness means, as we just said, sin is serious. It'll parlay into the very next conversation. In the book of Romans, we get the most complete description of the saving work of Jesus Christ in the entire Bible. Remember our study of Romans. If you're new to the Bible study, we did a complete study of the book of Romans, uh, and you can go back and find that at BurgessMinistries.com by clicking on the media button, or you can go to the Rick and Bubba YouTube channel, hit the playlist, See past Bible studies in the book of Romans. That Bible study is there. In the book of Romans, the most complete description of the saving work of Jesus Christ, Romans spells out the implications of Christ's work for the life of the believer and unpacks paramount doctrines of the Christian faith, such as justification and sanctification. <sighs> sanctification. Before Paul gets, uh, gets to informing the reader of the riches of our call to salvation, justification, sanctification, and Christian living, he has a clear starting point for understanding why these doctrines even matter. The reason salvation is needed is because God is holy and he will not let sin go unpunished. He can't. He's holy. That's why he had to hand out that wrath and punishment on, on his own son on the cross. He can't let unredeemed sin go unpunished. If your sin is unredeemed and you're unreconciled to a holy God, you're going to be punished 
by him because he can't leave your sin-filled life unpunished. He can't. That's not that would have, he'd have to change his character. That's why you got to have redemption in Jesus. It was poured out on him. But if you don't if you don't stand but if you don't have Jesus stand between you and a holy God, then that punishment's going to come on you. And it's important for us to understand that. Paul sets the stage explaining God's holiness and our failure to acknowledge him. He says this in Romans chapter 1. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what, what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Rather than worshiping our creator, we chose to worship what was created because of this willful rebellion against God. All offenders deserve to die. Romans 1, verse 32. So Paul says, we all deserve to die because of our rebellion against a holy God. So he's setting us up for the good news of, of the grace that was provided through Jesus. But if you take Jesus and get him wrong or turn him into a hippie or reject his deity, reject his perfection, reject his 100% God and 100% man, and you don't understand why he went to the cross, he's on the cross paying the price for your individual sin, my individual sin, and I'm in desperate need of that redemption because I'm wretched. If you can't get that, then you're not going to be redeemed. You don't even understand how rebellious you've been against God because you don't understand his holiness. And um, so then, the next thing, if God is holy, sin is serious, and if God is holy, what are we? Paul continues with a starting point by informing the reader that because of your hardened and unrepented heart, Rick, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment, don't miss that, his righteous judgment is revealed. He will repay each one according to his works, eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. That's Romans 2, verse 5 through 8. Say that again. We're all going to be repaid by God according to his works, eternal life to those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking. It's all about me, and I want God to be what I want him to be. I'm not going to submit to who he says he is and disobey the, and disobey the truth, and I'm going to obey unrighteousness, not righteousness. Well, that's not the place to be. And Paul goes on. Paul then identifies the spiritual location of humanity apart from Jesus Christ by quoting the psalmist. Listen to this in Romans 3, 10 through 12. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All, all alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. The reality is that people are not sinners because they sin. They sin because they are sinners. Say that again. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We all inherit sinful nature from our first parent, Adam, and then prove we are his offspring by sinning ourselves. Keep in mind. Keep in mind right now. See, we're getting real serious now about, about this situation because it is very serious. But go back to the difference, and this is what some of you need to understand. Some of the cultural Christians that are watching this, and I assume there are many, or you know people in your life that need to hear this, here's what, you, here's what we got to get away from. When you start talking about holiness, and you start talking about uh, our wretchedness, and you start talking about that there is a response that, that, that grace, it's not cheap grace, it's grace that, that came at a great cost, and it demands a response from us. It demands sanctification. It demands obedience. All these things are in the Bible. But here's the problem with the cultural Christian. You start talking like this, here's what you've got to be careful about. Because I've seen it in my own life. Cultural Christians usually believe the only difference between you, if you're redeemed, and them is that people that are into the things we're just talking about, the only difference between us and them, or when I was a cultural Christian, y'all and me, is that 
that you're just a little more into Christianity and you're just a little more extreme than I am. I'm just as Christian as you are. You're just really into it. That, that sounds like a child. That sounds like a child. That's somebody who doesn't want to deal with their situation, so they're pivoting. They're pivoting something. Now, I'm still, you're right, all the things you said, are that's, that's a lot, but that's stuff you're talking about. I mean, that's just people that are kind of extreme. You know, you just, all this holiness of God, and, you know, wretched repentance and, you know, brokenness and humility and crying holy and, you know, I'm just as Christian as you are. You're just a little more into it. Boy, I hope that's not the way you see these things. I hope that's not the way you see these things. Because that's a very dangerous place to be. So, we go on. So, these are the things that, that, that we want to... Th these are some things that will help getting into a conversation with a cultural Christian that ought to bring them to at least assess where they are. But it's also things that ought to bring us into assessing where we are at the same time. So for the cultural Christian, morality is usually determined by how you're perceived by others. So as long as I can be perceived by other people, then I'm okay, then that's, that's all I really need to worry about. How I live in my own my secret life is not important. It's how I'm seen. It can also be influenced by whether you're someone who identified with the church or by how well you provided for your family. I, the cultural Christian I talked to this week, you know what they said? I go to church, they named the church they went to, and I'm a good provider. I promise you. I couldn't believe when I, when I was studying, because I just studied this on Saturday, or, or was it Sunday? I think it was Saturday. I just studied this on Saturday, and, uh, and then, that was Sunday. On Sunday, come on, Rick, get it together, baby. And then a few days later, I'm in this conversation, and this person is saying exactly what Dean's talking about. He, he, he literally said, I live, I, you know, I'm pointing to all the things going on in his life that are in conflict with Scripture, conflict with God, you know what he gives me? I go to church almost every Sunday, and, uh, and I'm a good provider for my family. Well, that's good. But those people go to hell just like everybody else if they're not redeemed. And th those, are, those are certainly fine things, but there are a lot of people that do that. And so a belief in the holiness of God should expose this thinking as ridiculous as believing that you have just ordered a Diet Coke and that cancels out the cheeseburger and fries at a fast food restaurant. We've seen this before. And I've actually had a fat person say back to me when I did the diet drink, because, you know, I've struggled with my weight uh, for a large portion of my life, and I made fun of the Diet Coke that we ordered. And you know what the person said? Well, I know we make fun of that, but at least the soft drink didn't have as many calories as a normal soft drink would have. It is trying to do a little bit better. Yeah, I, I guess so, uh, but being a good provider and going to a church, if that's all you're bringing to the table, um, just like the Diet Coke, it doesn't mean a whole lot. And it probably is not the plan you want to implement if you ever want to lose weight. So, so, th so there's a lot of truth to that. But all the good deeds performed perform tomorrow won't cancel out the sin that was done today, nor do the good deeds done several years ago. Only a high view of God's holiness can make that understanding possible. When God is understood as holy, sin cannot go unpunished. There are no mulligans. There are no participation trophies. There are no awards for good effort when it comes to redemption. You've heard me say this, and I, you can feel it in a room, men push back, which I love that because that means men, might be, men are usually waking up in the room. It's amazing to me how many... Men who pride themselves on being competitive, pride themselves on excellence, pride themselves on being a good provider. Pride, I would participation trophy. I tell you what's wrong with this generation, participation trophies. You've heard all this over and over again, and that same guy, when it comes to his Christianity, is absolutely someone looking for a participation trophy. Some reason, spiritually, he's fine with the participation trophy. But the participation trophy in spiritual, in the spiritual world, is just as meaningless as the participation trophy for the person who didn't do anything. It's just as meaningless. And if you can you can make fun of participation trophies in sports and all the things that we do where we don't we don't talk about excellence anymore. And certainly I don't like that either. But don't be the kind of person that that demonizes a participation trophy over here and then fully accepts to get one in your spiritual life. I find that to be terribly inconsistent. And uh 
So then the next thing we get in cultural Christianity is what? Good people go to heaven. Where, where are these good people? Where are these good people? The most common belief in cultural Christianity is that good people go to heaven. When was, I don't want to get morbid here, and we certainly want to be appropriate. When was the last time that anybody died, anybody, anybody died that you know, that, that somebody didn't say that they felt pretty good about that they might go to heaven anyway? And when you start asking, why do you think this person went to heaven? I mean, I just feel like they were a pretty good person. You know, oh, Joe, he's, he's a pretty good person. It, it was was Joe redeemed? Did, did he cry holy and say, I'm a wretched sinner and repent of his sin and submit to the authority of Christ and, and say, please forgive me? Uh, I, did, did they do that? Well, I, they were pretty good, a good provider. And, you know, he's just a good old guy. Um, not in the presence of a holy God are any of us a good old guy. Uh, it's just like people, why do, good, why do bad things happen to good people? What good people? None of us are good. No, not one. We just read this out of Romans. I'm not surprised that bad things happen to, to this, this fallen, wretched world full of sinners like me. I'm surprised that anything good happens. That's surprise. God's grace and mercy is much more perplexing than his wrath. I understand his wrath. It makes perfect sense. God's wrath makes perfect sense. His grace and his redemption... That's odd. That's the thing that's surprising. I'm thankful for it, but it's surprising because we're not good people, not compared to the holiness of God. In the minds of many people, being a good person is just an issue of comparison. Well, I mean, I'm not saying I'm great, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that bad. I don't, I don't, go, I don't go too far with it. Uh, I mean, uh, I don't like physically commit adultery on my on my on my spouse now I do lust for other people and I do look at uh, porn uh, but I mean I'm not as bad as you know the guy at my office that you know left his wife for the secretary now yeah you are you, you actually you actually are see that that's that's kind of things we come up with this different of you know I'm, I'm, I'm yeah I mean I'm not great but I'm better than him I'm gonna tell you something when I got redeemed I was such a wicked person. When I was redeemed and I started being sanctified and actually started getting into obedience and changing, there were a lot of people that were not excited about that because I was the guy they pointed to to say, well, at least I'm not as bad as him. I mean, and now, the, and, and now God was changing that standard, and only he could do it. When other people are the standard of goodness, you will always find someone a little worse than you. You know, if all else fails, you just start pulling out a Hitler or something. I mean, you always find somebody that uh, you think is worse than you. But here's what you don't understand. All this equality we keep talking about and singing about, there's only one place that you'll find equality. That's at the foot of the cross. Every single one of us, we are in equal need for redemption. You're as wretched as anybody else compared to the holiness of God. And you need redemption just like that horrible person that you love to talk about. So... The cultural Christian, you know, does not really want to get to that high standard because when God becomes the standard and I compare myself to him, the only response can be, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Look at uh, Luke 18, verse 13. Luke 18, verse, verse 13. That plea doesn't exist without recognizing the holiness of God. When we finally realize we are great sinners, we can finally understand that we have a great Savior. Jesus, you know why Jesus isn't a big deal to the cultural Christian? He doesn't think he's that bad. She doesn't think she's that bad. I mean, can you imagine if all of a sudden I looked and somebody said, hey, good news, uh, we have a Savior here, and the Savior is going to save you from this creek that's about a foot deep. I think I'm good. Uh, so he's going to keep me from falling down in the slow babbling brook here and drowning or being whisked away by the babbling brook. He's here to save you from the babbling brook. Okay. I appreciate that. But uh, what if all of a sudden it was a raging river and he, and, and he stands there and says, I'm going to save you from this. 
Because when you go in there, if I don't save you, you're done. See, if I don't have a severity of sin, then a Savior ain't a big deal to me. So he's called Savior. What does he save me from? Uh, some, not much. No, he's a Savior, which means that word Savior means I'm, i got to be saved from something. What is that? Oh, that'd be the wrath of God is what that would be. That'd be eternal damnation. That, that's what that would be. That would be where you, 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 you die forever and you're separated from God and you're in torment. That's what he saves you from. Well, then, yeah, then he probably needs the name Savior then. So God's incredibly gracious. He certainly is. It's not cheap, though. And it demands a response, and it'll change your life, and it'll change you. And if that hasn't happened, then you're not saved. And those are the kind of conversations that you can talk about. The love of God is something a cultural Christian is sentimental about. They sentimentally affirm that. But the idea of a loving God means little if that God isn't a holy God who so loved the world that he gave his son to be our substitute and die a death that we deserve. If we desire for our friends and family to understand the love of God, they must come to an understanding that they don't deserve to be loved. God's love is no big deal if you deserve to be loved. It's just like Jesus talked about, oh, so you love people that love you back. Well, anybody can do that. But what about when you realize that you were unworthy of his love and he gave it to you anyway? That changes the whole dynamic, doesn't it? No, no, you're not worthy of God's love. What you and I deserved, I'm not worthy of his love. I deserve to go to hell. That's what Rick Burgess deserves. And God came to me with a love that I can't even wrap my mind around, especially when I realized that he is holy and he reached down from his holiness and saved me when I was unlovable and not worthy of being saved. And that's why you kind of get to that point when you understand that grace that you kind of don't want to abuse it when you understand what it really took. Then you kind of become like, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, your, your grace that you gave me will never be in vain because I know that I didn't deserve it. I deserve to go to hell, and you saved me. So the grace that it took to save me, you'll see a faith of action, and you, you'll never think that that grace was in vain. Rick, are you talking about earning salvation? I certainly am not. I sure am talking about responding to salvation, though with love and obedience and a pursuit of sanctification and holiness and always taking sin serious because sin nailed Jesus to the cross. My sin. That's what I'm talking about. While we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, when we were unlovable, Christ died for us. Romans 5, verse 8. This is how the love of God is known. So conversing with cultural Christians, and then, um, and then we'll get ready to wrap up today. Um, here's some tips remembering when establishing a starting point in spiritual conversations with cultural Christians. Uh, jot these down quickly. We've only got about seven minutes, and we'll be done. Many cultural Christians claim to revere the Bible. So feel free to refer to it as the authority on all things. And, uh, and so... If you're thinking about talking to someone uh, of another faith, you, you, it, that would take some time because they don't believe the Bible. You're talking to a cultural Christian, so you believe in the authority of the Bible? I do. Well, then let's unpack it. Many of them have church affiliations that don't use the Bible much, uh, so it's likely they have no idea what the Bible that they claim to believe in actually says. Yeah, there's a lot of churches out there the Bible doesn't come up a lot, so don't assume they know that much about it, but they acknowledge that they revere it, so let's, let's jump in. Lovingly ask them frustrating questions. What is the standard for good? If they say they're a good person, how good is good enough? How many good deeds do you need to, I mean, like, what's, so I have, do I need a seven to four, seven good deeds to four bad deeds? Start getting into these kind of frustrating questions. Uh, who actually makes it to heaven? And when they say that, say, what do you mean by that? Ask some questions like, uh, you know, you want to un uncover their, their source of authority for their stated beliefs. The reality is that most cultural Christians won't be able to answer these questions. Like I had the other night talking to a cultural Christian. Tell me how you were saved. You didn't have any idea. 
other than he believed in Jesus. Uh, the point of this is not, and this is important, and I made sure that this person I talked to this week knew that I loved him, and I was doing it because I loved him, and I even told him my wretched sin and what I had been redeemed of to kind of be sure I didn't put them off like I was doing gotcha, self-righteous, anything like that. That's not the attitude to take. It's to always use yourself as an example. That always helps. But then you got to get to the point of seeing what they can explain and let them assess that with themselves. What we're looking for is a starting point of what God has told us about himself, our sin, and the solution found in Jesus. Ask them about the Ten Commandments. Uh, this always is a great starting point. Uh, there's a good chance that they can name some of them, of course. Ask them how they've done in keeping them, and if there's any consequences for breaking them. And if they say they don't really understand, say, well, if there's no consequence for breaking these commandments, then why were they ever given to us? Another good starting point. Uh, cultural Christians claim a belief in Jesus. I ran into that this week. I was this way. They also believe he died on the cross. If good people go to heaven, then why did Jesus die? Is anything more confusing than a Savior dying for people who really didn't need to be saved? So if you believe Jesus, uh, who you believe in him, and you believe that Jesus went to the cross, why? For what reason? It certainly wasn't for good people because there wouldn't be a need for him to go to the cross if we're all these good people you keep talking about. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. So that's always a good point as well. So the, the Christian faith uh, that, the, that the cultural Christian has, they claim to have held, had little to do with anything the Bible said outside of trying to be a good neighbor. You know, they'll do that. You're supposed to be a good neighbor. You're supposed to treat people well. Well, there's a lot of social workers, and there's a lot of people out there that always talk about, you know, all we need is love. Love, love is all we need. Love each other, man. You know, and all that. And we certainly should, but love is not all we need. No, truth is all we need. Redemption is, is what we need. And, and in order to understand that, you've got to understand the situation that we're really in. Um, so if, they, if we can get them to open their eyes to the reality of God's holiness and their personal sin and need for a Savior, a savior if we can get that understood, happened in my life, a starting point can be established, and, uh, and, and then we can move that there is a need for the gospel that they already claim to, uh, to believe in. He's, and then Dean and Sarah give us a... Uh, an example of a salt-of-the-earth coach. We all know this guy, father figure to many and all this, but he but, but he, he did not, he used to, he didn't go to any church or anything like that. He'd watch some televangelists, and, and here's some of the false theology that sadly you can find there sometimes. And he said, but then he heard the gospel, the message of God's holiness, our rebellion, our need for salvation, Jesus' fulfillment of the requirements of the law in our place, and the eternal security that we find in Jesus, that alone woke him up to the realization that the belief in this gospel changes everything in our lives. He realized that, number one, his well-intentioned good deeds didn't change the fact that he was a sinner and in need of forgiveness. Number two, that, that what he heard at a gospel-preaching church was way different from the encouraging self-help with biblical themes and, the, and what he'd been hearing other than this, that, other than this, that really you found he kind of cast Jesus into being a mascot. But when he went to a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church, he encountered the gospel, and it changed everything. Remember, don't be intimidated about starting gospel conversations. Remember that we're looking for a starting point, not a one-stop shop to full gospel understanding. Don't enter these conversations as debates. Remember that. I've made that mistake before. You're not, we're not trying to win a debate. We're trying to honestly do what somebody did for us, and I know somebody did for me, and ask them to consider whether they truly understand the gospel and are they truly saved. And we do this because we love them and we care about them, not because we want to prove they're wrong and we're right. That cannot be the motivation. Pray to God to provide wisdom and, and, and the need to walk with someone through their resulting questions. Ask God to help you with that. Um, you know, his, his friend's realization that he needed Jesus led eventually to saving faith, baptism, deep commitment to a local church, and spiritual growth. But that first began with a starting point. And you know what that starting point was? Hearing the gospel and understanding it was good news. So, as we close out this session of the unsaved Christian, here are things that can help us to reach cultural Christians, but again, 
It's also an opportunity to assess whether or not you or, or me, we might find ourselves not being the person who's trying to reach a cultural Christian, but maybe realizing that we are a cultural Christian. Whatever the case may be, I pray that today's lesson be applied appropriately to your life and, and to mine, uh, wherever it belongs. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for confronting us, and thank you for being such a wonderful Savior. And thank you for the reminder today that you're called Savior because there was something we needed to be saved from, and that is our sin. Thank you for reminding us, Lord, that you're holy and we are not. And thank you, Lord, for reminding us that you came and loved us even when we were unlovable. And may we never abuse that. Or may we never take something so important like the gospel and cast it into traditions, rituals, and just something that is uh, part of uh, you know, habit that we have every Sunday or so. May we be confronted with our need for you as our Savior. Pray these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Rick at rickandbubba.com if I can help you in any way. Thanks for being with us today. Hey, this is Rick, and that concludes this week's Bible study. Thank you so much for being with us. If you'd like to go back and hear other Bible studies or maybe some that you've missed even in this series, you can find them by clicking the media button at burgessministries.com.